Well, I guess you just have to be prepared to die. Well, what? Cell phones, pay attention. I tell you, you start counting five like a sucker. You know, you do the high school musical, yeah. and that was really my first, uh, you know, in elementary school, I did, you know, did some sort of talent show stuff, and, you know, school, it, it was all school-related, and, you know, by the time I got to high school, they were doing musicals, we had a really inspiring uh, drama coach, singing coach, choir, uh, who taught us all to sing, and um, I was sort of following my brother's footsteps, James Naughton, who was older and uh, was also, you know, had gone to the same same schools, uh, certainly same high school, had the same, you know, inspirational teacher. And, and I think he put us uh, both on that sort of path to, uh, to pursue acting. Well, you know, you just, when you're in school and, and particularly high school, you're in all sorts of things that, it turns out I could sing. I was interested in, in vocal uh, performance. Uh, and as I said, this particular teacher was very in, instrumental. And teaching is really the basics in, in singing. And, uh, you know, so that was sort of what got me going. And then, as I said, the musicals came along, and I was on stage. And uh, I carried it on into college. I was, you know, doing drama not programs or majors, unfortunately, where I went to school at the University of Pennsylvania, but just extracurricular drama clubs and uh, ran into some pretty good directors who were saying, you know, this is something that kind of comes naturally to you. You ought to think about taking it as a, uh, taking a shot at it. Yeah. And, and so, and so I did. Well, you know, certainly um, it's not something that parents get excited about when you talk to them about what you know what you want to go for. And my parents were, you know, educators. Uh, the thought of having two actors. So we also have my sisters in between my brother and me. And uh, back to my brother, well, he was having success early on in his career as well. So it, it didn't seem so undaunting. Uh, you know, this was an un, you know a, a task that. I took a rather traditional approach. I decided, you know, I wanted to get some training uh, for the stage. So after college, I, I applied for drama schools in England. And I went to uh, a drama school in London for a couple of years uh, and really studied acting. And also got to see so many actors on stage in the West End in London uh, and had, had them uh, – our school provided the opportunity for some of those great, you know, like John Gilka came to our school and talked to us and, and you get a chance to meet or at least see people in the flesh talking, going, hey, they're actual real people and this is what they do for a living. 
and it's it's something that's feasible and possibly attainable. And so it made it a reality for a lot of us going, yeah, I, I think it's worth it, worth the shot. Yeah. And so we're all sort of on a five-year plan, you know, which is really kind of crazy going, let's limit the number of years. <laughs> but yeah. that was kind of the sort of plan initially, yeah. Well, I really started in theater. I, you know, I, when I got out of this drama school after two years, I uh, I came back to New York because I'm originally from the East Coast, grew up in Connecticut. Um, I went to New York, and that wasn't really my plan. It was like, oh, gosh, the last place I want to go is the Big Apple and just proclaim myself an actor. But that was kind of where it led me. Uh, got some auditions in New York uh, for the New York Shakespeare Festival uh, with Got my first job and joined Actors Equity, the union for actors, um, and so uh, that was the start. And and so television, uh, I think the very first thing I did in a television project was just a small kind of a daytime uh, little show for kids, and then I did a national commercial, and then just sort of started slowly building from there. Well, you know, while I was in New York, uh, as I said, one of the first jobs I auditioned for was the production of Hamlet, that Sam Waterston was playing Hamlet, and it was in Lincoln Center. Uh, it's a pretty legitimate kind of a show with a huge cast, which is why I was cast, I think. Um, there were so many parts, and they needed soldiers and things. And, uh, and you know, so while you're, while you're uh, being an actor, while you're – uh, in theater and doing things that aren't, as you say, it's very small scale in terms of the type of percentage of people that actually get to see you perform. So you feel like an actor, you're doing your craft. And I was also going out for commercials, and so I landed this big campaign for Dr. Pepper. And and while I was an actor in New York, and, and that certainly got me uh, a lot more attention than I was really prepared for. Well, you know, while in New York and, and getting these commercials, the first thing that affects your life is the fact that they're paying you, you know, yeah. in a way, and you're actually making money as an actor that's, you know, theater is, is certainly not anywhere near as commensurate as the kind of residuals you can get with national television commercials. That's why so many people are drawn to trying to do them. They, they supplement your income, or they're the sole source of income. And, and that was the thing for me was uh, – Suddenly, when these commercials started to air, I was like, wow, I can actually uh, afford to live in New York and afford just to be um, those periods in between when you're looking for jobs. It also gives you the power of saying no. You don't have to just jump at any old project that comes along just to try to make your rent. So so that was the real impact was the economic. Yeah. And then, of course, when the commercials aired and people started to – they were inquiring, like, hey, these are, these are pretty cool commercials. Uh, Who's the guy, you know, in it? And, and slowly I was getting some attention from locally and, of course, from Hollywood. That's what sort of brought me to L.A. was the fact that some producers were uh, 
acknowledging that these were pretty special commercials, and let's let's meet and interview the guy who's doing them. Well, I would say, yeah, these commercials, these for, for Dr. Pepper were, uh, you know, they're competitive in that they're, you know, up for these awards, these national advertising awards that happen every year. People don't know, they don't hold a lot of stock in the public eye, but certainly in the advertising world, these Clio awards are commercials, are, are awards for outstanding commercials. So they were not just succeeding there, it was putting the, the, the drink itself, the, the product, uh, kind of on a national stage because these were national commercials, which at the time, the way they did them was, very we'd go out, you know, as you know, Dr. Pepper would sponsor sporting events, college football, and all kinds of things. So these commercials were running so often that they became a very familiar to a lot of people that could, uh, yeah, certainly you're, you're sort of, um, as what they used to call the TVQ, your, your, uh, your, your fame basically would go up, but more importantly, it would bring bring you to the attention of people that could hire you for other projects, namely television series, pilots, uh, films. And so I found that was uh, it was really a, a great calling card in, in terms of opening many doors. Well, that was kind of weird. that was based on a TV show that I was. That brought me out to the West Coast. It was a disco series uh, on ABC. That they had, you know, they had had all the rights to all the music at Paramount and for uh, based on Saturday Night Fever, which was a gigantic hit back then. And so this was sort of this, the TV spinoff, half-hour sitcom. And I was able to sort of talk my way into auditioning again for the song. I was going like. I was inquiring about, hey, well, what's the title song going to be about? I mean, this is a show that has a sort of point of view of a guy working and going to school and going to disco at night. And, you know, it's, it's a point of view of his, of this guy, the character that I was playing. Why not get a chance to actually sing the song? So I had a chance to meet with the, the writers of the song. And these guys were very successful with uh, Peaches and Herb songs, Reunited and Shake Your Groove thing. And, so I came walking in as an actor, and they were kind of like, going, "Well, uh, we had other, we had actual recording artists in mind to sing this song, but they gave me a shot, and they went, yeah, I think this will work.' So I, I was able to, uh, to record the song. It was released as a single, and uh, it had its own life, unlike the series. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look back on it now, and I think there was sort of a wave going on. It's sort of like, let's just ride this big old wave, get on the surfboard, and ride the wave. of, As I said, the commercials were were very successful. Uh, the song had uh, had a life of its own. It was just taking off, and people were, uh, you know, feeling the vibe of just a very positive uh, self assertion of going, yeah, I'm making it. That's right. And so, I mean, I used to get these. Videos from schools, high school cheerleaders, and they doing a whole routine to make it in. Yeah. Last, but 
But uh, I'll go on then. Yeah, I get on uh, uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand, Rockin' New Year's Eve, and all these different shows. You know, Merv Griffin live from Las Vegas. I did all. I said, wait a second, you know, I'm sort of a trained actor from, from London's uh, drama schools. Here I am, you know, just going away, and, and you just don't know how your career is going to go. And it was pretty wild. I mean, and you know, I was on, I was signed with RSO, which is the Rubber Stigwood, uh, or Australian uh, organization. Mm -hmm. I got the Bee Gees, you know, and, and so it was really the Bee Gees was their group, and then they started to have differences of, uh, as as you know, as those big giant group fan, uh, famous groups do. I guess they start to. You know, they, they try to, they want a bigger piece of the pie. And, and so they left RSO, and RSO sort of disbanded their label just to sort of mitigate the the, the, uh, the lawsuit that was going on with the Bee Gees. And so I, I and, a, and a number of other uh, artists were sort of collateral damage where we didn't have a label any longer. There was my, there goes my record career. Um, it was necessary at the time, too, I was since 78, 79. I, Maybe. Uh, actors weren't looked at as, as, you know, today triple threats are happening all the time. These are actors who happen to have, you know, you look at the cut, they do, they do everything. I mean, it was so different then in terms of how actors were perceived. It's either you are this or that, but you can't do both. And um, that's no longer the, certainly been the case. You see so many different people that they get record deals, they get clothesline deals, fragrance mm -hmm. deals, and so they become business people as well as, as singers and actors, and, and it's just a whole giant, you know, conglomeration. That was very unusual back in the 70s. Yes, that's true. They're, that's either or again, where they really, film actors didn't do TV, and so you hear about these big-named actors who were doing commercials, but they were doing them like in Japan, where you'd never see them. You, know? you could not do that, but in, and still have a very good film career uh, by doing commercials, which has also changed. But um, yeah, it was just, uh, and uh, you know, as I said, when what I really learned from all that was, even though I had a plan and how I thought my career was going to go, like I was going to plan it, that's you really don't have much say in the matter. You kind of are caught up in the storm, or uh, if, if it's not a sorry storm, but but in the fast pace of a career moving in a direction and you just jump on board and, and see where it takes you. Well, yeah, it, it was just great. You know, I, I danced. I was at Studio 54 uh, in this day. Um, it was just a great dance music, you know, no matter what you thought of it. And people thought of it was like a musical or didn't quite rate. With sort of, you know, you couldn't have original sounds, and, and none of that's really true. I think that um, to this day, uh, it has a, you know, it's been knocked as a, uh, you know, as an inferior form of music, when in fact, there are a ton of songs, and, and a number of artists, number one, probably the greatest, this goes down to Summer, who had so many big hits, 
and Hundred Summer music was so great. But the, but as a genre, it was just a really fun to dance. It certainly is possible. I don't know who it would be you could point to to sort of promote that negative uh, anti-disco vibe. But And it could have been just jockeys, you know. Who knows? Um, I know that I was floored when uh, uh, when they were talking about making it uh, Detroit Rock City. I was like, what? You know, they were a big Heavy Duty Kids fans and... and and sure enough, they're the one song they pick to sort of be the anti-Kiss song was a disco tune. And it happened to be my record. Yeah. How did making a kid picked on that one? But, but, you know, whatever. It was it was funny. It also appeared in the trip soundtrack for Meatballs, the yeah. film Mercury. And people thought that's where the, you know, the song came from. But it had sort of life of its own before. And... Um, was initially released as a 45, so it had a little 45 sound, and we sold a lot of those. And then it had an album size, you know, uh, release because disco songs were like seven minutes long. You know, they were so so long, and we recorded a seven minute version, which came out as they say, as like a 12 inch. Yeah. So it had a kind of, and it's been on so many different compilations. Tube tunes in the 70s, Rhino Records released it in many ways. So for one song, I have to say. It came out in many, many different forms and CDs, and, and I was I was quite uh, quite surprised by it all. But the bottom line is, you know, is it how, what's the song like? And that's the thing is, people um, resonated with people in terms of the message that it had. It was very upbeat, positive, and uh, plus it had a pretty cool beat to it. So overall, um, it had the staying power. Uh, on the charts, and then over the years, it's continued to sort of be used. It was used in commercials, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and anyway. So as I said, yeah, it had a wonderful life, and uh, I was delighted to be, to have been a part of it. When really all I wanted to do was just sort of have a song for the title song for our little series, which we thought was going to be, you know, sticking around for a while. Oh, no question. No, those they were certainly an upbeat. Uh, and there's a ton of other, uh, you know, disco artists that had big hits. Um, yeah, so I, I think it was much maligned and, un, un, you know, unfairly so to be anti-disco. Come on.
Yeah, I mean, I had done this little movie that Michael J. Fox uh, doesn't really talk much about in interviews, but we did this movie for Disney called Midnight Madness, which uh, kind of one of those videos has had kind of a life of its own. Colleges discovered it, and that was after making it, and then I, I, Dr. Pepper was still going strong. That turned into a, like a four-year contract for me, and um, so my agent at the time got me an interview with, this, with, the, with the director of Animal House, John Landis. Mm-hmm. Had a huge, you know, huge success with the Blues Brothers, and now was now uh, able to do the film that he wanted to do. And so he he chose to do his own screenplay that he had written when he was 21 years old, a horror film called American Girl from London. And so he was casting it as quickly as he could because his special effects guy Rick Baker, who has become one of the you know best in the business, at the uh, needed. His two guys, whoever he was casting as the two boys, he needed to, to get them in his shop to start the preliminary makeup uh, effects before we even ever shot the movie. And it was before he even got financing for the film. He was casting away going, well, the money will come, but meanwhile, i got to get this if we're going to start on a schedule. So the idea of that film, which is pretty unusual, it was a very start to finish from the beginning of casting to its release was like eight months, if you can imagine. Really fast, yeah. October, November of 1980, he was casting it, and and then Rick Baker was literally casting our faces and and making the uh, the, the makeup, uh, all the effects and practical uh, appliances that he needed to make. And we went over to England in January, February of 1981, and the film was released in August of that year, six months later. So really fast. I think partially because they were trying to be the first movie out. The Howling was coming. Um, there were other comp- competitive tech films, and John wanted to make the big splash with his film, so we, it was a rush to get released. in the sense that we shot uh, the screenplay. I mean, the screenplay was that strong, if you can imagine, written by a young guy. And then, you know, years later, 10 years later, probably, when he was about 31, he was directing this this movie, and uh, he was certainly an experienced and successful director. I think the, the, the critics were not exactly sure how to take it. You know, that many... People thought, oh, John Landis movie, it's going to be a Kentucky Pride movie comedy, you know, and say, no, no, it's not. And this is his horror film. And so, you know, the, the marketing uh, was posters even set on it from the director of Animal House, a different kind of animal. And he wanted people to aren't sure that if you come to the theater, get ready to get scared because this is going to be a horror film. And and uh, so we, as I said, we, we ran in some, some – uh, difficulty from critics trying to figure out, hey, you know, you, you broke all the rules, it's funny, and then it gets scary, and and, and that was the unique part of the film, and, and part of its success was it has a number of storylines and incredible makeup.
Yeah, it just didn't quite be the same. And I, I think, uh, you know, Rick, for a guy who hadn't had a lot of film experience at the time either, although he, and he was uncertain how it would look on film, he certainly had, you know, uh, time enough to work on the makeup effects himself and how he was going to do it. And he and John were, John was really leaving it up to him. Like, I just want it to be a four-legged wolf and the transformation, we have to just film it. I want it to happen right in front of our eyes on film. No, you know, hidden secret camera tricks or smoke and mirrors. And that, that was the challenge. And, and it really, uh, Rick was uh, able to pull it off in a way that uh, put certainly put him on the map. In fact, the Academy created the, the category of special makeup effects because and the Howling's effects as well. But Rick was the standout, and he, that was the first of his what's now been seven Academy Awards. And yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. And as an actor, we had no idea what we were in for or how long it would take or what this guy, Rick Baker, was going to put us through. Um, there was nobody we could talk to or call and go, hey, I'm working with this guy, Rick Baker, what's it going to be like? We say, oh, you're going to be in for it. I mean, I should have known the first day I met Rick. He goes, what part are you playing? I said, I'm playing the part of David. He goes, I feel sorry for you. I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, well, I found out, you know, how painstaking it was going to be. We shot the whole movie and just had the transformation shoot at the end where everybody else was up filmed and done and complete. And then I had this transformation scene, which took a week, five days, ten hours a day in makeup. Um, just unbelievable, uh, a grueling process. But they kept saying, this is going to be such a payoff. You're going to love it. I go, I'd, I'd love it if we could do it faster. Though. You know I mean? Hours, just hours. I just don't, you know. And you can't just fall asleep and go, "Hey, I'll wake up and be the wolf," you know. You have to participate, hold your breath, do things, sit still, and be attentive while they're working on you. So it's it's uh, unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And I said to myself at the time, "And this will be the last time." I'm not sure that that's still uh, a viable thing as far as schedules and so forth, but, um, you know, and at first I was like anybody going, what do you mean a remake? You can't, you know, why mess with this? Just leave it alone. Go find your own original idea and make a film and leave us alone. And then I thought to myself, you know what? Of course, if they do a remake, it'll only be compared. It will forever be compared to the original. And, uh, you know, an audience will be, We'll, we'll continue to find another generation of an audience that says, yeah, I just saw this movie, but I, now I have to watch the original. And, and so I said, you know, so we'll stick around for another 50 years, maybe. Who knows? Well, I can tell you one thing for sure is they certainly can't make it for under 10 million bucks, which is what this was in 1981. Yeah. And... You know, uh, and, you know, it's really funny because this whole CG stuff is so much more expensive to do. And, and, and you know, it's, and, and directors don't really get the hands-on that they do. At least, you know, it used to be with CG 10 or 15 years ago even. Um, you have to ship it off to somewhere, you know, artists in the Far East 
who don't aren't part of your film or the process or know the vision of the director, but are just going to be doing effects. And then you get them back. Like, here are the effects, you know, after you spent a third of your budget going, uh, this is exactly how I saw it to work, but yeah. you're stuck with it at that point. There isn't the same sort of uh, control that on CG, from a director's standpoint, I, I don't think that you have, when you got practical makeup, you go over to makeup, you sit there and you watch, and it's slow going, but uh, this was a this was a case of, uh, you know, when the practical makeup was never before seen and, um, and worked, so we really got lucky. Oh no, there are. I've met those people. <laughs> but yeah, there are bands that are so obsessed with this film, you have no idea. I, I've been to England a couple of times for to do shows and personal appearances, and they look at me like, "You, you were in our film." I go, "That's right. I was in your movie. You are. It's your movie, England." Well, certainly, um, you know, I mean, the technology has gotten so advanced, you know, where, where they're just with little dots on their costume, you know what I mean? And, and they, and how they do it, where you see, or you find them in the apes, where they have, you know, just amazing ape makeup, where I was, you know, my brother was in the series of Planet of the Apes in the 70s, and I got a chance to do a, being a Dick Smith makeup as an ape on his television show, and it was to look at that show now, you see how primitive those ape makeups were, and and how advanced they've become, and and that's really one of Rick's specialties. Rick Baker is he was an ape fanatic, and certainly studied with Rick uh, with, with uh, Dick Smith, but he he became a master of uh, all the different kinds of apes, and that was his sort of his his favorite thing to do was ape makeup. But um, but I digress. The the reality was. Uh, we got a chance to do some stuff that hadn't been seen before, and we had a good storyline to go along with it. And so I think we really were lucky. And, and everything worked. It's funny. You talk about catching lightning in a bottle. The film wasn't particularly, you know, over budget. As I said, John Fendis was going out and getting the money himself and then delivering the final project. And it came in under budget. And you know, just in DVD sales alone, I think that thing is done just very well for itself. Well, there weren't a lot. I mean, it was sort of like it's, nobody was really even going to touch it. But it was sort of like, I mean, if you look at, if you think of a guy like Robert England, mm -hmm. when you think of Robert England, what do you think of, yeah, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that, to me, is a little bit more typecasting. It's like, has 
can you go beyond being Freddie Robert England? Not that he needs to. I mean, he did a phenomenal job, and, and he's utilized and, ex, and exploited his, his, his uh, performance in the sense that he has embraced, I should say, more than exploited, you know, the association of that character. Uh, whereas, you know, my, mine was sort of a, no, I wasn't like the werewolf guy, you know, and became, I was certainly approached to do other sort of, you know, cheaper horror films and I would call slasher films that just didn't have the substance or the, you know, they were truly, as I said, you know, the, the screen queen type movies uh, that I would try to avoid, you know, as best I could. Um, there's always a conquer, you know, your resume. You go, gee, I thought that was going to be good. But, but, but the, you know, the reality was I was so, I was running from the makeup uh, departments around Hollywood going, no, I've done makeup. I mean, there's nothing that I have done it. And, uh, and, and you know, it's funny because Rick has made a – Rick has since published a book. John Landis has published a book. Uh, there's even a book about the making of American Werewolf called Beware the Moon. Um, and there's a lot of photos of Rick's makeup. And so uh, me sitting in the chair in different uh, stages of the uh, of the transformation and – and the reality, and, and so over the years in different television projects that I've worked on, I meet makeup artists who all revere Rick Baker and his work as they rightfully should. And also, when they, so when I sit down in their makeup chair, it's like they're going, "Well, I got to really be good." It's like, no, you know, I, I, you know, would I raise the bar in terms of makeup? No, I was just the guy sitting in there getting made up. I've certainly experienced some of the best stuff, and there, any technique you have. Or thing you want to try, I probably already had it done to me. So that's what's it going to be, you know? So it's been interesting. Um, it's kind of an interesting. Uh, you know, nobody knew it would have the sort of legs in a sense, you know, the long term. But I think, as you were saying before, in this time of year, and Halloween comes every year, and October and full moons, and that whole association. If, and and who, what I've met with people that I've talked to, fans at different places around the world. They all say, it's in my top ten. This is like the five, you know, we watch five DVDs at Halloween time. It's in that, you know, it's in the group. And then, oh, that's cool, you know. Well, television is really, they're just looking at the clock, you know. The hour, it, so it's as fast as they can get it out in the sense that they have a lot to do in a day's work. Where film, depending on who the director is, too, uh, you know, you have a whole schedule to take this one project. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you're going to have the luxury of time to get it right and do multiple takes if you need to. And, and you know, your performance can be a little bit more uh, protected than I would say than you do in television, particularly as a guest artist. You don't get any time. You know, you just come in going, we need you now. You know, all you're early, you sit around all day, and then they finally get to you. And then when they get to you, you don't get time to sit there and talk to the director. Uh, and generally. I mean, it's just like come in and do your thing. You know, we got a lot to do. And that's television. And that's just the way it is. Um, 
it's it's uh it's interesting that there's some real quality T V out there but just know that it's on a very tight, tight schedule. You know, they have so many people working and so if you figure what's your hourly rate, you know, one hour costs how much money? Um and it's you know, it's in the tens of thousands of dollars per hour. So they're not give, you know, guess guests particularly uh and so what it teaches you as an actor is be prepared. Just get in there and know your lines rock solid because they may change something on you, which has happened to me before where you know, you could just you know, if you're if you're going in there with this open mind like, well we'll have a time to rehearse. No you won't. You won't tell you where to stand, where you're gonna walk, what door to come through and count to ten and they're gonna start rolling so you better be prepared. And and whereas as I said, the luxury is it's a little bit uh you have a little more time to breathe on film than you do on television. Well, you know, it depends, really. I mean, it's all about the role. You know, you know I don't care what the, what the, the, the venue is. If it's theater, you know, if it's really about the role. And and unfortunately, you know, guest starring in television, some of the roles are not particularly that I've played are not things that I've done, you know, uh, are so memorable. Um, exception of now, a small little show I did, it was called Granite Flats. It was BYU TV, of all things. But it got picked up on Netflix, and BYU was up until you know 2012 or whenever we started this thing was uh, hadn't done original programming. So here I was in, involved in a project that was going to be doing like 24 episodes of one-hour scripted television uh, set in the 1960s, dealing with subjects of uh, with the Russians in a military base. You know, so so it had all kinds of relevance, uh, relevance today, uh, and it was a wonderful opportunity to play a character, uh, I played a doctor in a military hospital who ends up being the bad guy. And, and the thing was cool about it was there was time to think about the developing the role, and there was one writer. You get a chance to talk to the writer on the set before he's written subsequent episodes. So you really get a feeling like you're collaborating in terms of him understanding you as an actor and incorporating that, what you are, what you're about, in the role that he's going to write next week, in next week's episode. So that's really fun as an, as an actor. Right, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That is fun. And the fact is that it's television, uh, it just keeps you on your toes because, as I said, you have to do your homework because when it comes time for your call time and your shoot day, you got to get it done that day. And, and they look at you like, what kind of actor are you? Are you the kind that's going to slow us up? Or are you going to be the kind that, you know, is always there, always ready? God, we love him. I mean, I, I got to the point where uh, I was, you know, these guys would call me in and I'd only, I'd work right away as opposed to calling in actors and then have them sit around all day long before they get to them. Um, just out of a courtesy because I never held them up. And I really appreciated that because your performance is better. It's fresher when you're ready to come in and you work as soon as you go. 
you know, as soon as you get there versus, you know, you get there at 10 in the morning and after lunch, maybe towards the end of the day, you're, you're going to shoot your scene going, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> Watching television and seeing this stupid pandemic just take over the world, and I feel robbed. You know, after my age, at this point in my life, over 65, you kind of go, "Hey, I, I don't have this kind of time to waste." You know, yeah. I, I, I've been—we've all been—you know—I had a little year of our lives stolen from us. You know, in terms of the the things that we can do and the things that we can't do, and and you know, just being cautious and and having to be you know, aware that we could at any time, you know, it, it's just unbelievable. I, it, you know, and I, I've been, I've traveled even though it was dangerous. I'm flying back and forth to the East Coast uh, because I haven't got a place there. My wife and I have a place in North Carolina, and, I, and this place here in, in Palm Springs is just sort of a, a winter place. But, you know, the fact that I've had to travel and the, the caution that you have to take, it's just uh, it's just been an unbelievable year for all of us, you know, and, and not been to be an election year and all the trauma of additional, you know, it's like, do you even want to watch the news? No, I don't want to watch it. Just the world wants to talk about plays. Can you do a play? No. I mean, Broadway, Broadway's closed until next May, you know? Mm -hmm. Not that I'm interested in so much in Broadway, but just an aspect of all my brothers and sisters in the acting world are just grounded, you know? Yeah, television networks are announcing their schedule, and you kind of go, well, how can you announce your schedule when you don't have any shows in the can yet, you know? Um, and and particularly, they're saying, well, our premiering new series are going to be November now instead of they're normally September for new shows. Well, well, good luck with that, because unless you have four or five already to go, uh, you know, there's all these new protocols in place on production. Um, everybody's in a mask, except for the actors, and then what, they take their masks off when they shoot the scene and throw the mask back up. I mean, is there testing on sets? What if you're dealing with somebody that, you you know, comes in off the show, and do they have to quarantine before they get to You know, if you go to Canada to work, and there was so much production in Canada in my career over the years, it was sort of like, what happened? How come all the TV went to court, you know? It was all about the, the cost and price. But now if you go to Canada, you got to quarantine before you can even work. And then, uh, so, you know, what's the, what's the uh, you know, the enticement there going, hey, you want to do five days on a TV show? You'll have to get here two weeks ahead of time to do it, you know. We'll get through it, but uh, but in terms of trying to promote anything new, I haven't uh, had the opportunity or the pleasure of even visiting my friends who are working because nobody's working. You know?
mean, nobody saw it. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, and look at movies. These theater chains are closing, you know? So, look, I, you know, we can sit here and talk about poor us and their people fighting for their lives, but the reality is um, this isn't over. It doesn't look like it's going to be over in 2021 either. And I, and I, the fact that I, I said I feel robbed and, you know, of my, of my, not only my livelihood, but just of our lives, you know, and have to adapt to a very serious, uh, un, uh, invisible uh, pandemic. And um, we'll do the best we can. And, and hopefully at the end of it, or, or as we come out of it, there'll be opportunities for people to need and want to see entertainment. And I'll be ready. I think it was Barbara Eden, you know? Uh, I, yeah, I was like, wow, put her in your spank bank, fellas. Like Barbara Feldon from, you know, Maxwell Smart. She was agent 99, and so she was this tall, you know. Uh, and then, of course, let's see who, any of the, you know, the girls from Petticoat Junction, and Ellie Mae from, from, uh, the hillbillies, you know, enough total hottie. <laughs>
died. That was something that I thought, what would that be like, you know? And then, I, you know, when I said, years ago, I had an opportunity to meet Anthony Quinn mm-hmm. in, in a position. And it was so weird. It was in Beverly Hills. He was staying at this hotel, and I had to go to his room. Uh, it was like, but he had a suite. It was like a, a duplex. And so I'm waiting downstairs in this living room, and he made this entrance that was so, like, I think about it, so 1940s. He came down a big staircase in a silk robe that was like, when? And I said, well, yeah, it was so hokey that uh, I was going to have an opportunity to work with a guy who was sort of a legend of Hollywood, but that didn't happen. I spoke to Jimmy Stewart one time, though, and that was incredible. And he came in and he introduced himself. He goes, hi, I know, I'm Jim Stewart. You know, I'm, yeah, I know. Was to work with Catherine Hepburn. Come on, Spencer Tracy, did any of those movies go? What would that be like? Or, you know, Cary Grant having him with your dad or somebody. You know, there was just so many, you know, there's so many great actors then and still are. I mean, today it's just you're sort of uh, overshadowed by effects. You know, you look at some of these at these big these big movies now. I mean, as Scorsese says, you know, Marvel those aren't movies. Yeah, I was just going to say the exact same thing. They're like amusement park. No, I agree. Where you see, they're the biggest thing in the movie, you know. Whereas in some of the others, it's like, no, no, the facts are so incredible. You know, what do you see this rocket? What do you see whatever? But you know, you're right. And I said, made me think all these other guys that were, you know, I'd seen all of them. But anyway, to continue. <laughs> oh, a guilty pleasure movie. You know what it is for me? It's uh. Uh, we're the Millers. That's so funny. And I, I just stumbled on that movie a couple of years ago. It was playing at one of these $3 movie houses, you know, and I was out here in the desert in the summertime where it's like 100 million degrees. You're going, let's go to the movies. And we go, what are we watching? We're going to go see We're the Millers. And it was like Jennifer Aniston's in it. I'm mad kid now. We'll, we'll look at her. And it's hilarious. I couldn't believe it. So that's my guilty pleasure. What? Oh, Anaconda? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of times people's favorite movies are not just the movie itself, but what was associated with seeing the movie, you know? A fond memory of somebody you were with or something that happened, someone you met during the, You know, and then you associate that movie with that experience, and you got to go, that's my favorite movie.
Oh gosh, you know I don't necessarily have one. Um, it's just that depending on the you know the genre, what the, what the mood you're in, you know, there's so many different types of films that are so great. You know, you say I'll watch that again. You know, I don't say that too often about the movies. Like yeah, I'll see it again. You know, where people say I must have seen this 25 times. Um, uh, so I'm pretty picky in terms of seeing the movie over again. But you know, it was like The Wizard of Oz. You know, as a kid. It's like, how many times have people seen The Wizard of Oz? The fact that it was on annually, you know, and you could, you know, and that you could quote it. But I think about it, you know, I I didn't even understand as a kid. I remember going, remember it turns into color, and you go, yeah, but where? I don't know where. Where does that happen? You're a kid. It's color. You see the color? You see the black and white? Yeah. I go, maybe it's, we didn't have a color TV when I was a little kid, you know? Well, you know, I did a movie with Nicholas Cage called The Book of Boo. Set nineteen I think we shot in eighty six or eighty five. And it was uh you know, this was a a movie about a guy who was in a big Canadian rowing hero named Ned Hanlon. So it was a basic biopic, you know, of a real character and so Ned and uh Nick was playing the rower. And uh but so we've shot all around different places in Canada in in Montreal and in Toronto around lakes, steamboats set in the, you know, 1980s. It was a pretty neat movie as far as what we were trying to accomplish. And, um, well, Nick was just a strange cat, I can say. Instead of eating, he was, like, trying to train his Nick, as this guy, Ned Hanlon, and building some buttons as a rover. So he, would, he said, so I'm going to have to eat a special diet. What he didn't tell us was he was trying to cook, like, in a, on a hibachi in his hotel room, we got thrown out of a place. Nick was cooking chicken in his hotel room, and the sprinkler system went off. Well, thanks for letting me go, you know, take a little, you know, stroll down memory lane. I appreciate it. Well, I guess you just have to be prepared to die. Well, what? Get off your cell phones. Pay attention. I tell you, you talk time, you fire like a sucker. Yeah.